This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 27th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundbom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have some content for today's show, not a lot. Before we even get into that, just like a pre-recording apology, I had uh, I had a day. My infant, my one-year-old, napped while I took him for a walk, which like he's been doing because he's been waking up at 5 or 6 a.m., or earlier every day. Uh, yesterday was 4 a.m. Today today was 6. It felt like a sleep-in, actually, compared to like 5 or 5.30. But he napped too much in the stroller, so when I went to put him down for his proper nap, he just like screamed for like 20 minutes as I tried to comfort him. He's also got molars coming in, and I take it that doesn't feel good. Um, so uh, I managed to get him a bit more sleep later, but I am just like running on fumes these days. And uh, you feel like shit, too. Yeah, I think I'm coming down with something. So, uh, yeah, start of a cold or something feels like. Anyway, we will probably try and keep this uh, brief, and uh, neither of us may be at the top of our game on this podcast. <laughs> with those apologies in advance, we're going to talk about uh, some <laughs> wild ideas in the legislature, some bail data, a TELUS deal, and uh, C-11 is law, and the strike is still going. Support us on patreon.com slash politicoast, and... Help us feel better about struggling through our exhaustion and illnesses to bring you content every week. Usually you'd call in sick, but you were telling me you like just came down with the re- these symptoms like as you hit record. So that sucks. Yeah, I'm also like not sick enough. I can't record. It's just annoying more than anything else. We'll see if I regret those words tomorrow. All right, starting here in BC, uh, new private members bill. We haven't been going through all the private members bills that have been coming up this session, uh, but this one is interesting. It's more interesting than the, you know, there should be public, there should be defibrillators in every public building act, which is fine, seems good, or the we should have an inquiry into crimes against small businesses. I mean, that actually doesn't seem unreasonable. Well, I mean, depend on how. St- the entry scope for like small businesses it's, it's not scoped in the bill it's given to the minister to do <laughs> which like and like this is an opposition this is what todd stone was it yeah yeah so this is a i guess bc united now uh bill on that which i guess puts a fair bit of trust in the minister on this one if, if they pass it they can do whatever they want with that inquiry sure on the other hand can't they just like if they were so inclined, they could just do it anyway without passing it. it it's not a full public inquiry, so it would yeah. appoint a commissioner. Anyway, I don't care. I care about uh, Sonia Furstenau's bill to ban politicians from having jobs again when they retire. Yeah, so this is uh, Bill M221, the Members' Conflict of Interest Amendment Act, uh, brought forward by Dream Party leader Sonia Furstenau. And would basically prevent any former member of the legislature from taking a job, accepting a board position with any entity they dealt with in their uh, role as a member for 12 months. And if you were a parliamentary secretary or a cabinet member, that gets doubled to 24 months. Um, It also increases the fines. In the Conflict of Interest Act, from five thousand to fifty thousand, the maximum fine. Uh, I think that's less controversial. A five thousand dollar fine isn't a lot. I mean, it it's not nothing, but you know, increasing the maximum fine is probably the less controversial thing in here. But yeah, the big thing in here is this blackout on people who are MLAs or otherwise elected from having jobs or sitting on board of directors with these other um, companies that they have had direct and significant official dealings, which is not defined in here. Um, 
it's I think the conflict of interest has precedent, you know, the equivalent of precedent on that. I'm not an expert on that, but it is a pretty strong prohibition. Now, this is being flagged in response to John Horgan taking his job uh, or his board position at Tech, I believe it was. Um, it was a subsidiary of Tech. Yeah. And they're trying to make some hay off of that. And yeah, this is very clearly the screw John Horgan bill in terms of timing and what it's in response to. Like, it's an interesting idea, and I can see where it comes from. I think there is... Like, one of the... Yeah. So, not only is there the prohibition on just working for them, there's also prohibition on um, making representations on or behalf of uh, them to any minister or organization, you know, basically anyone that's government. So, basically, there's also a lobbying prohibition in there. And like, I think it probably makes sense to like separate out the two because, yeah, having a no lobbying if you're just coming out of working for the government, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The like, you can't do any work in anything you've touched or, you know, just go work for a company or an organization. Like, this doesn't specify like a for profit pub, you know publicly traded corporation as the group it's just any entity it's like if i don't know david eb retired and wanted to go work for um the bc uh civil liberties association again uh he <laughs> wouldn't be able to on this even if it's just like doing so you know just sitting on their board or something which is like doesn't seem ideal from a a general like thing on that and uh, as a board member of the bccla i have no comment on that <laughs> hypothetical and like any direct it was literally the first thing that mind, happened but... in the past uh, 12 or 24 months between those entities and people fun times but yeah like i think there is a frustration and it is a real one in the public with a seeming at times revolving door between like people in public policy and people lobbying and connected to it. And even within organizations, you can say, oh, well, this person can't do lobbying, but they can still work there. And it's like, like being the person in the meeting room isn't always all there is to lobbying. Like if you know John Horgan is at that company, but even if it's not John Horgan calling, he's telling who other people who to call and you know, maybe name drop him. Like, it's a little bit fluid within those contexts. So there is always that little bit of it, like, it's not corruption, but it can verge on there at times. And so, like, the intent here is to clean things and to create that uh, separation so that our politics feels freer of outside influence. Now, whether that's corporate influence or even activist nonprofits. Uh, I think credit to Sonia First now for not discriminating, because, you know, I would have usually seen her or the NDP pitch this in a way of like, you can't go take a corporate job. Well, now you can't go take a union job either. If that union has lobbied you, or, you know, had dealings. This isn't going to become law, obviously. No, it won't. Unless the BC Greens form the next majority government. What was a little bit wild is some well, of the first stuff I... Go crazy. <laughs> some of the first coverage I saw of this suggested it was even more broad, like a ban all jobs for MLAs after they retire, which, you know, I could I could see just the like wild, why not just go that far? Although I think... I mean, that would you be an only, insane thing you, to do. You could only justify it if you promise to extend the salaries of MLAs for one or two years after they have left and they can just basically like have an unelected sabbatical until they get back into the workforce. It would still be unappealing to many, but it would at least be a cushioned off-ramp. Uh, the bill, I'll credit her for the thought that went into this because there is an exemption as well so an individual can ask the commissioner for an exemption to that proposal above to ban you from working or being on boards uh if you can um 
pretty much make a good argument that it's in the public interest that you have the job versus that you don't have the job. So maybe you were very active in the community and you talked a lot with a social service agency and coming out of there, you're like, I want to get involved in that social service agency because, you know, we work together a lot and I think I could make a difference building homes or something. And maybe the commissioner looks at that and goes, yeah, this isn't going to create a conflict. But then they have to announce that you've gotten that job on the website. So at least there is like a a caveat to this system. Yeah, but like nobody but the, uh, you know, reporters are really going to check that website. And if you're retired, so what? Is that not actually a disincentive really on that? Uh, but like the, the thing I can see is, you know, if anyone's a major employer in someone's writing, like they can, that does significantly limit career prospects afterwards. And that's not always great. You know, particularly for just like random backbench MLAs that, let's face it, have basically no power in the current system. That's the thing, especially the opposition. Like, it's one thing to say, John Horg, it's, it's you know, weird for John Horgan to take certain jobs after retiring or other cabinet members. But like the, you know, Adam Wilson as the second in command of the BC Greens in the legislature or... Like there's, yeah. you know, the BC United MLAs that we can't even remember the names of. Yeah, there's one, and I, like you said, I can't, you can't remember the name of it. But the, wasn't there one that, like, a couple of years ago got like injured on like the part-time job they do at like a concrete company up in the interior, or something? Yes. Yeah, I, which a oh, little weird to be working part-time when you're an MLA, but uh, like, would they be prevented from carrying on the work they were doing? In that case, like that's presumably that was that was Dan Davies. Yes, that's the one. Like their big employer or decent sized employer in his writing, like he's probably dealt with them outside of just the fact that he worked for them. This yeah, is yeah, increasingly that, weird that, with that, this example, but like, no, no, no. But but it brings up an important point. Like we should, if we're gonna worry about MLAs taking jobs after, I think we should first worry about the jobs MLAs have right now. Yeah. That are like we're not in the day where I'm reading a history of Vancouver book and it's like such and such a person was a senator and then they decided to also run for mayor of Vancouver. And you're like, that seems like a split loyalty. And there were lots of people who were like federal politicians and municipal ones at the same time. And municipal is a little different, but you know, provincial and well, even municipally, like there's still kind of the expectation that like council members are kind of doing this on a part-time basis and you know a bunch of them carry on other stuff even though like practically speaking there is probably pretty close to full-time workload if not more just on the council stuff here in vancouver but yeah mlas and mps today at very least don't need part-time jobs and yeah that that's the weirder thing for me but but also like it's an intro yeah we also want you know politics to be broadly accessible and for people kind of from all backgrounds to feel comfortable running and that also means your post uh pol politics career has to be something that is there for them afterwards and i think we should be careful about layering on too much stuff particularly because I mean, politics already sometimes comes with, you know, career limiting prospects just because being a public figure involved in like a bunch of potentially controversial decisions and like just a general level of political polarization that's uh, taking hold in Canada. Like there are already ways that going into public service as an elected representative is career limiting if you're not you know going to be a lifelong politician and like maybe we don't want to be furthering that uh just if we also want to make politics broadly accessible indeed and like um sorry yeah the thought just also trust my of um like there are um uh indigenous uh 
MLAs who got involved and like may want to go back and uh, you know work with their respective nations and presumably they will have had direct dealings with them as a an MLA and like you get into a bunch of weird cases like that. Uh, sorry, Ellis Ross, you cannot go back to being an elected councillor of your nation after this, or even just like working uh, in a non-elected capacity. Mm-hmm. For that, like that doesn't seem ideal. Maybe those are the special exemptions. Like, I'm I'm glad they brought this forward as a private member's bill for the discussion and debate, even if it's not one I'm a hundred percent sold on. I think there there is a value to the conflict of interest act for MLAs. Obviously, we see what happens when they don't have it in the uh, Supreme Court of the United States right now, or have any conflict of interest rules. Um, it can go too far, though, and this might is probably edging on too far. The other thing people are arguing has gone too far for the past few months is whether the reforms made at the federal uh, level to bail policies have gone too far, and now we have useless data, according to themselves, from the BC Prosecution Service about preliminary bail data from earlier this year. I say useless because they say it's a relatively small size of a data sample and the limited period periods that no clear conclusions can be drawn. Uh, that hasn't stopped many politicians from drawing clear conclusions from the data that has been released. So what we have here are data about bail hearings collected during seven weeks in late 2022 and early 2023, both before and after the provincial government implemented a revised bail policy. Um, this represents uh, about three to 400 hearing bail hearings a week over that period of, and that's of roughly 600 to 700 files, accused files dealt with. So basically there's a, a bail hearing in about half of the, uh, accused files being dealt with. And then we have a little bit of detail on this. And most notably, uh, it breaks down into how often bail is granted when the prosecution seeks it. Yeah, so they break down a few different uh, categories, such as uh, where there's a violent offense involved or a breach of conditions. So like when someone's arrested the police can let them go with conditions and often times when uh they're, they're caught in breach of those then there becomes a bail hearing on that uh as well as kind of ones where there's overlap so they break it down by you know at least one file dealt with a violent offense and at least one breach uh etc on that uh the rates vary a bit but uh as you were saying, the minority of cases, bails actually, or a uh, detention order was granted uh, in these cases. Uh, and the general rates for, seems to be somewhere between a third to half, depending on the category, uh, is when the prosecution service uh, is seeking a uh, detention order. This data is a bit frustrating to me. like. We're both data nerds. We love numbers, good stuff. What is weird about this to me is it kind of comes out of nowhere. As far as I can tell, there have not been releases from the BC Prosecution Service on bail data in the past, ever. And so this is kind of just suddenly like, and here is what bail is doing over this seven weeks. And I have no context. Like, I don't know if the federal government's policies increased or decreased rates because this only deals with like before and after uh, a provincial change. And it seems like that provincial change didn't make a big difference, but it's, as they say, too, too early to tell because we don't have enough data here. Yeah. It would be definitely useful to uh, see a comparison period before it was what bill C 75, I think was the, the bail reform one. Because uh, that's the one that's actually like drawn a lot of criticism in terms of the the net effect on it. But yeah, this without a comparison point is a little hard to say. 
I mean, the main thing we can draw from this is that in cases where there is someone who has breached their conditions of release or has been charged with a violent offense, the the vast majority of the times they are not held before trial, but that only tells you so much. Yeah, these are like just raw numbers on how many times were granted versus weren't, and we don't know anything about the whys other than like the types of cases. So like we don't have a good sense of whether like is the prosecution just bad at making its case that these individuals would represent a serious risk if they were granted bail like underlying all of this is the presumption of innocence like just because you have been arrested does not mean you are going to jail in our system it means they have a reason to think you did something, but they still have to prove it. And that's why bail exists. Mm -hmm. But like at the same time, there have definitely been cases where, uh, and once I've gained a fair bit of attention, where someone has been arrested in the, during the process of committing a crime or shortly after, uh, and in the subsequent reporting, they've been on bail pending another charge and stuff so there there is becoming a general concern around whether or not the the balance is being correctly struck between public safety and uh the presumption of innocence on this one so this is a starting point on that it would be nice to have a little more data to better get the sense of where if the balance is off well, and the other part that's frustrating to me as I like think through these issues is like part of the challenge is if you have someone out on bail, it's like how long do you have them out on bail before their trial? Is it a day? Is it weeks? Is it months? Is it years in some cases? It's and pretty pre-trial to like they're not quick, but you, like you still have a right to a speedy trial, so they're definitely getting it within a year. I'm pretty sure. But we could have speedier trials, and that would reduce the chance of someone doing something well out on bail. Like, there are other op things that have effects here. Um, and also, like, we know crime is tied to a lot of social conditions um, that also need to be dealt with. So, like, it's complex issues, and that it all gets boiled down politically to provinces yelling at the federal government saying you need to change bail conditions uh, and presumptions in the act again, and oppositions yelling at provincial governments to be harsher in, I don't know exactly how they could do it, but the BC United thinks the NDP is doing this wrong. Yeah, I think they'd rather, they'd want to see, the bit they did say in the article is that they want, uh, or that they see the roughly third to half as opposed to the majority of uh cases having a request for detention being the sign of the ndp is too soft on this stuff it's maybe a little bit of a stretch but like both uh nate Sharber, the attorney general and david eby are pretty adamant about this and i neither of those people had uh came into politics with a particularly tough on crime uh worldview or or anything so like the fact that both of them are have adopted this position i think is noteworthy on that it's noteworthy that at very least they sense this is an issue they need to do be seen to be doing something on and be taking seriously so they have that um yeah it's an interesting one i mean like, finally, as I said, this is the first time I've seen the BC Prosecution Service release bail data as a media statement, which suggests a intention to weigh into a political debate, even if it's, you know, from the here's just numbers. They're not numbers in a vacuum, right? There's only a set number of numbers here. This was clearly done as um, an intention. This was intentionally. They mentioned somewhere in here that they had to manually collect this data. So I don't know if this was a direction from 
the government or of their own accord, but it's it's bordering on a politicization of the prosecution service, or at least their willingness to engage in politics. I mean, perhaps, but like also, this is probably the stuff that like, yeah, maybe they haven't released this in the past, but might not have been the worst thing that they had in the past uh, on that. And maybe this is just something we will see right here literally going forward. To be clear, I would love if the BC Prosecution Service and many services released a lot more data regularly. But if we know one thing about this provincial government, they don't love releasing data. (laughs) They don't have a good track record with that. Neither did the previous one, but that, that just, you know, puts up my spidey sense of there's this isn't a full story and that's frustrating but maybe we can can you foi i guess if it's difficult to collect the data they wouldn't have it in the end anyway speaking of not having the full story uh, we have a little bit of an update i think we talked about this in the past where the medical services commission this is the organization very few people have heard of that oversees the uh, health insurance pro the public health insurance program here in BC. They were suing Telus Health over the program they had to provide physicians to members of the public that included a like premium service plan that, in theory, was only supposed to get you non-billable uh, health treatments and advice. But it seemed like if you paid this plan, you got a GP, which you're not supposed to pay to get medical coverage in this country well medical so coverage like that was is violated. covered by the public system yeah yeah um so there was some conflict between telus and the government about what exactly this program was uh bc had the medical service commission had sought an injunction to shut telus health down in the province this is something the bc greens have been yelling at about for a year as well uh and telus has come to a deal with the medical service commission and we don't have the text of the deal or the specific details. We have some broad sense of it, though. Um, basically, what the health minister, Adrian Dix, is saying is TELUS is going to sever its uh, program. So those things that can be charged back to MSP will be pulled out of the Life Plus bonus program, and those will just be TELUS Health. So your family doctor will still run through that if you got if you signed up for that. But then there'll be the premium tier will be very clearly delineated as you sign up to Life Plus if you want to get um, referrals to, I guess, like massage therapists and things like that that aren't covered. Or mental health care. Yeah, win for the government on this one. Um, gives the Greens one less thing to uh, attack the government on, and yeah, probably for the best. Yeah, the... The challenge underlying all of this, and I think a reason we didn't see the government move faster on this, uh, and the reason they're probably happy with a settlement, is we have still a massive family doctor shortage that will take a while to fix, even if the new uh, payment schemes work. And so you don't want to punish the people who signed up for this and are getting the doctors you need. And you almost need to be careful that you don't scare away the doctors who are signed up on there as well and have them leave the province because we don't want to exacerbate the GP shortage. And so, yeah, a big win for the government to be able to, you know, put this behind them and at least clear up that there is a way you can do e-health in the province, but it needs to delineate covered medical services from the things we don't cover for some reason sometimes legitimate sometimes like we just don't think brains and eyes and uh teeth are part of your body that matter although teeth are starting to matter federally if you're uh uninsured and poor (laughs) or at least mid or low income and file the right paperwork of course obviously you have to file the paperwork scott Speaking of the federal government, let's jump over to quick takes. First up, let's talk C11. Uh, I feel like we did do a piece with Open Media last year about Bill C11. Can you remind people 
what this bill is and why people were mad about it. Yes, this is the online streaming bill that uh, is the government's attempt to basically update the broadcasting act to, well, the 21st century and deal with the fact that a lot of uh, media has moved online. Uh, The main point of contention is whether or not uh, the bill is going to impact uh, user-generated content and producers of that. like in general for streaming services, they're going to have to adjust their algorithms to promote more Canadian content, uh, as well as pay into, uh, fund the CanCon production stuff on that. Um, so yeah, it's basically taking the same system that we have for broadcast TV and trying to, uh, clutch it into uh, a streaming service model. The big criticism around this centered on whether user-generated content, the stuff you and I post on, well, not Twitter anymore where we're not active, but Facebook or Reddit Potentially or even this podcast. Whatever, yeah, uh, is subject to the litigation, uh, the legislation. The liberals have maintained it's not, but have been unwilling to support amendments that say that explicitly in the law, which makes a lot of experts like Michael Geist very nervous that's a very Uh, sus way to go about things the government's the government's argument um is we promise we won't do it and the senate which passed it today uh acknowledged they wouldn't do it in a note and i'll come back to how they passed it in a minute uh, that the government has, the liberals have given a public assurance that C11 quote will not apply to user generated digital content. Uh, the government says it's not the same as legislated. Such an yeah, yeah. The government says a legislated change would impact their ability to quote publicly consult on issue to publicly consult on and issue a policy direction to the CRTC to appropriately scope the regulation of social media services. Basically, they're saying they don't want the legislation to tie the hands of regulation that they would want the CRTC to do, not on user-generated content, but on things related to it, maybe. (laughs) Which, again, yeah, seems suspect. Yeah, because, like, the CRTC only has regulatory power because it is granted it in the legislation, so it seems entirely reasonable to scope that with legislation, because that is already what exists and uh gives the crtc their left and right of arc so i don't get why all of a sudden the the government thinks it's inappropriate to put that into the legislation other than they want to leave the door open in the future to uh regulate user-generated content well and like the liberals won't be in power forever and why would they not want to like restrict the conservatives from managing you know regulating user generated uh, content me. like the- obviously any future government can change the law but that takes work uh excuse me they're the natural governing party here i don't think they necessarily think that much about the other te- team actually running things fair so c11 had a complicated path to becoming law today uh it started in the house of commons in february of 2022 it was debated there until third reading was completed in june Which- uh, it, we should also mention that, that this is the second attempt to pass this. Previously, I think it was C10 yes. that uh, was from the previous parliament. Yeah, I didn't look at how long that was debated. So it also had some debate, at least in the House, I it's think. It's been a multi-year uh, saga. This, yeah, this then went over to the Senate where it was debated from June until finally completing uh, its committee in December and completing third reading in February. Uh, it is officially i've read the longest or the bill to get the most consideration and debate in committee and study from the senate in history like they spent a long time on this and made a lot of amendments and when the senate makes amendments those have to go back to the house so that message was sent on february 2nd the house then debated those amendments in march at four different sittings and they accepted some and rejected a bunch of others they sent the bill back to the Senate at the end of March. The Senate then debated it for four more sittings in April on the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 26th. And finally today, agreed a motion that said 
we accept the last version from the house because they they have to pass the same bill um it sounded like some M, uh some senators were willing to try to put their foot down and make it a uh, firm position here but they couldn't rally a majority support uh we've seen a few bills ping pong like this between the house and the senate uh especially on the controversial ones since the senate has become officially independent and is filled with independent independent senators independenters um going back to C14 the first medical assistance and dying bill and in every case i'm aware of the senate only really makes one set of amendments and then it essentially rolls over and accepts what the house of commons does i think like it's not an official rule in canada yet but it is in the uk that the house of lords defers to the elected chamber and it feels like our senate is adopting that rule unofficially in canada which you know there's reasonable arguments for but it is notable as a side story to the broader c11 issue well, on that, I think the real test isn't going to be anything that happens in this parliament. The real test is going to be what happens when we have a conservative government and a bunch of liberal appointed independent senators uh, who form the bulk to the Senate at that point. That's going to be the thing that's going to be curious on to see where they end up there. Because like, even though there's no longer the case where it's a bunch of liberal partisans, the people the liberals appoint are very much the type of people that share their worldview. So that's going to be where I think the real test of that norm is going to be. Uh, I am just checking, and there are 16 of 105 seats in the Senate that are vacant right now. So that's not enough to give the 15 conservatives who are still in the Senate a majority by any stretch, but... You know, if oh, so Prime Minister Pierre Polyev came in, he could appoint 16 senators in one day and double the size of the Conservative caucus. They'd still be fewer than the Independent Senators group, which has 39. Yeah, and like, I can't imagine the Liberals are going to go to an election with those unfilled. They would be stupid. Well, they'd be repeating Harper's mistake, and like, I don't think they are going to do that, but... The Liberals have a convoluted process, Scott, where you have to apply to... Uh, committee who then makes recommendations to trudeau and trudeau chooses I mean, they don't among that shortlist that. and they've probably got They're gonna like, do that a bunch of those seats have been open for a while they pro they could probably pull the shortlist now if they had to yeah i don't know what the state of that uh committee has been but there you have it bill c11 is law it was given royal assent the exact same day as uh it was concurred by both houses which was today um yeah so yeah no we'll see well i guess the next step is the crtc to create draft regulations um those to then go to feedback and consultation and you know nothing has changed today but in six to twelve months probably we may have the first implications of how the beloved crtc will regulate the and internet. just how good that uh non-binding promise on the liberals part is oh on non-binding promises no one's made any promises here but the strike is still ongoing i mentioned this last week and i wanted to bring two kind of angles to discussion of the uh psac strike that's ongoing first there's a poll from ipsis on behalf of global news uh, looking at perceptions of the strike they find the plurality is supportive of the union uh 38% are strongly or somewhat uh slightly more somewhat on the side of the union while 28% are strongly or somewhat on the side of the government another 34% don't know either way um and almost half don't of respondents don't know who's being the most fair of the two parties so uh, Global News and Ipsos conclude there's probably just not enough understanding or interest, like people aren't following it close enough to know the issues, which is kind of wild to think because this is a, one of the largest labor actions, I'm not going to say in Canadian history, but in 
contemporary history, 155,000 people is not a small strike. Like most people know someone who is on strike right now or more than Yeah, but like also if you're not getting a passport or dealing with um, like EI is actually continuing as essential service. So basically if you're like not getting a passport or dealing with like one of the few things that are actually administered uh, and programs that are delivered directly by the feds you're probably not really feeling it at the moment it's only been like nine days um it's not like if the provincial uh public service went on strike because there's a lot more frontline delivery at that level compared to the feds i mean people are filing taxes right now (laughs) and like a lot of that is automated but you know, if any issues come up, it's hard to get someone on the phone. Uh, it's going to affect how fast people get their refunds if you're expecting one. And so that'll frustrate some people for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, the union's asking for a very modest amount, to basically keep pace with inflation. And the government is saying, if we do that, uh, it's going to cost us billions of dollars more, according to the public um the parliamentary budget officer, and we may have to lay some people off, which brings me to the second story from CBC, uh, an analysis piece that suggests that uh, layoffs will be next, whatever they get. So the thing I don't entirely get about that is if the increase is more or less going to be roughly where the last couple of years of inflation have added up to, Tax receipts by the government are up quite a bit too, as well. As well. Like, if you index things to inflation, it should kind of come out in the wash on that. So, you have to remember in the budget that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is a mandated, I think it was 3.5% cut to every department. Right. Uh, so, there's that part. Uh, as well as the fact that I think the government has reprioritized a lot of spending towards um, cutting checks, essentially, or different kinds of programs, both through the pandemic and after. Um, And so, you know, it's one of those things where it's always sexy to put increase the Canada child benefit, but hiring 5000 people to make passports run 2% faster, which isn't very noticeable is just not at the top priority list. Maybe run a bit faster than that. I'm just making numbers up. Um, one number that isn't made up is 30,000, which is the number of jobs the public service has added over the last two years, which is quite a bit on that. Like the public service has grown significantly since 2020. Uh, and that is the thing that uh, I think is most striking in all of this is that does anyone actually feel like the federal government is doing a better job now than before all of those people were hired? Like, we're not, like, the passport situation has been a mess. It's kind of a bit better now. Um, but, like, basic stuff hasn't been happening. I don't think we talked about this, but there's a story a couple of weeks ago about how D&D isn't able to, like, process basic expense uh, rep- uh, expenses for soldiers who are deployed in Poland helping train the Ukrainians. And we didn't send Kutsova when we deployed them. So they were told to uh, purchase meals on the local economy. And more than six months later, none of those have been reimbursed. Uh, And like stuff like that, that is like the most basic function. Like every employer I've ever worked for has been able to like fairly quickly process a meal expense report. Uh, and get that compensated with. It's like one of the most basic bureaucratic functions any organization that employs people uh, can do. And like, that's not getting done. The passports weren't really working. Was like, all of this stuff has stopped working as effectively as it used to, but we also have a whole lot more public uh, sector workers, plus a bunch of the pandemic programs turned out to just be outsourced. Like, like Deloitte and the other uh, like um, management consulting firms and whatnot. So it's a little unclear what all of this increased public sector employment at the federal government has actually amounted to. 
I mean, they're also surviving the ongoing uh, mess up of the Phoenix Pay system that we haven't talked about in a while. I was just Googling and yeah, they're still trying to clean that up. Like, there's a challenge here, I think, where the public sector had a really rough go in the 90s where there were massive cuts uh, at the federal and provincial levels across different departments, which really uh, harmed the capacity to undertake new programs and to do the basic functions. And I think they managed to trudge along for a while. Uh, and I clicked through to one of the CBC's other articles, and they have a graph going back to 2010, kind of showing a decline during the Harper era from, uh, say, like 280,000 jobs in the public service down to like 255, 260,000. And then in the Trudeau era, it just kind of starts a trend line up after a couple years where it's increasing year over year. And they say during the pandemic, it grew about 12% over the two years. And I, I do wonder, like, there are more people, but I do wonder how deep the systemic issues caused by those cuts over decades it's kind of like housing issues, right? You can invest in housing and then go, well, we've, Scott, we've built new homes in the last year. We just approved more homes than ever, but housing is still unaffordable. I don't think building more homes is solving the issue. And the question is like, are we building the right ones? Are we building enough ones? Are, you know, are we hiring the right people? Are we hiring enough people? Uh, because we may still just be like bleeding out from so many different spots that it's hard to solve it in the short term. I, mean, I think that like maybe I'm just I think it's a little it, different because it, like some of the stuff isn't like new programs they're having trouble standing up like this is stuff that should be like basic competencies of any government you know issuing passports paying out employee expenses that sort of thing and it's one thing to have the attrition issues of the past couple decades. Uh, make it hard to like stand up some brand new program on I don't know like green industrial policy or, or something um, that like we haven't done much for the past day but like these are like very basic state functions that are starting to atrophy and like that that shouldn't be the case it when you're having a growing public sector and like something something's up here that's just goes beyond yeah there were cuts in the 90s and under harper like that that was also quite a while ago like trudeau has been running the show for what's it like seven nearly eight years now like at at some point just hearkening back to the 90s no longer really cuts it as uh, an explanatory uh method yeah oh and i should also mentioned on the strike, the we talked about the wage increases, but the other big sticking point is a desire to better grant flexibility around work from home. And that's a whole complex issue that I don't think we really need to get into, but I just wanted to make sure I flag that for completeness and I'll keep paying attention. What's interesting, though, I think about the strike is so far we haven't seen any hint of movement from the federal government that they are moving towards back-to-work legislation, and whether that's because of their uh, precarious status with the NDP or um, just a desire to not look like they're bargaining in bad faith. Um, it's notable that we're over a week in and still kind of slowly moving forward. No one seems defeatist about it yet. Like It sounds I like the sides are both optimistic a deal could be reached also like i don't harking back to the poll like i don't think the canadians are really feeling the pressure enough at the moment or having the frustration to really rally behind back to work legislation so yeah i don't i think it's going to have to get worse before things actually get to the point where the the government's going to consider that and like they don't necessarily have any like natural partners to bring that forward with like the ndp won't go for i mean the conservatives well, <laughs> yeah but like the conservatives are probably happier to let them twist in the wind particularly when like the meta narrative that they have had for the past year is canada's broken and hey nothing is getting done by the federal government because everyone's on strike because 
well, look at how much Trudeau sucks at keeping uh, the public, you know, keeping things running and getting a deal. Like, that's the thing that only helps the conservatives sell that broader message that they've been running on for the past year. So, like, yeah, maybe there gets to be a point where they come in and try and bail out the government and on that one. But, like, I can't see how they really have any incentive in until things like get really broken and you know goods are no longer being able to transit through ports because none of the uh actually i don't know if the the uh, customs people at ports are considered essential or but you know that sort of thing where like there is actually a, a massive toll coming from all of this and until then that they have every incentive to let this drag out and slam the liberals for having it drag out i will uh, state the official conservative line from uh, Stephanie Cousy, who is the conservative treasury board credit critic, is uh, that I'm not going to comment on hypotheticals. This rests on Justin Trudeau and his incompetent government. Uh, this was from CTV uh, News a couple days ago. Uh, she was continually questioned and said, as long as they're at the negotiating table is a hypothetical, and as such, we lay the blame with the prime minister. Uh, and yes, so, exactly that. Vasi Capolo said, "Okay, I'm just going to register that. Not that's not an answer to the direct question." <laughs> and then the I'm sure conservatives yelled about the biased media attacking them for asking them questions directly. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.